Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Today's sermon is called Skin in the Game. We're going to have a light starter question for you. If you had to pick one character or figure in the Bible, who's your favorite? And you don't get to pick Jesus. That's cheating. Enjoy. We are in the book of Exodus, but Exodus really begins in Genesis with Joseph and all of the people of Israel going to Egypt and things are going well. Joseph is able to manage a relationship with the Pharaoh where he becomes second in command and the people of God are doing quite well. And then we get to the story of Exodus and some hundreds of years have gone by and now the people are slaves. There's a moment of oppression and subjugation and pains and wounds. And the Exodus story, if read in a way that's not as helpful, will be read very literally. Meaning that you're looking for historical facts and dates and wondering which Pharaoh it was. And was it Ramesses II? Was it 1350 or was it 1270 uh, BC? But that's not the most helpful way to read Exodus. Exodus is the human journey. It's all of our stories. It's the story of sometimes we are in the promised land and sometimes we're in places of oppression and captivity and pain. And there's a reason that Pharaoh is never named in the book of Exodus because we all have our own Pharaohs and we need to name those Pharaohs. Exodus is a story that we need the help of others, that Moses in his life had the power of some strong ladies right? He had a mom and he had a sister and he had Pharaoh's mother and he had the midwives who were looking out for him, who were putting deep within his bones this sense of justice, this sense that there's more to this world. And Moses was the perfect person. He was kind of incarnational. He was Hebrew and at the same time he was Egyptian. He understood both worlds. He could navigate the politics of what was going on in Pharaoh's house. And he also understood that he looked different than everybody else and that he was Hebrew. And so we hear the story that Moses goes out and he gets in the way of two Hebrews fighting one day and he gets in the way of a Hebrew and and an Egyptian fighting one day and he kills the Egyptian. And then Moses has to flee because sometimes in life we make choices because this is the human story again. And when we make those choices, the dominoes just fall whether we want them to or not. And he runs to Midian. And the story of Moses is the story of so many people's lives that sometimes things happen in life and we have to move to the next phase and to the next stage, whether we're ready for it or not. And within Moses, this divine hum begins to happen and he recognizes that something's kind of off. And that's when he uh, kind of speaks out against what was going on between the Egyptian and the Hebrew. And we're all in that place as well. We have these things moving and shaping and and kind of bubbling inside of us that there's something going on in the world and we want more purpose and we want more meaning and we have to make some choices about how we're going to find that. Particularly you millennials, us millennials in the room. We are the generation of longing for purpose. We're not too good at working in the Ford factory for 30 years, right? (laughs) 
We have FOMO all the frickin' time. And so maybe the story of Moses is really helpful for us indeed, that there's these things bubbling inside of him, and he feels kind of angsty all of the time trying to figure out what life is going to look like. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Moses encountering God and God encountering Moses. And then last week, Brittany set us up with this idea of doubt and faith, that they are dance partners that they go together, that we need both doubt and we need both faith in this human journey. And to understand those things is incredibly helpful as we move into the story of Exodus. And then now we've had God who has told Moses, I want you to go back to the people and I want you to tell them that they're gonna come and worship me. And I want you to tell them that, the, that their God has returned, that I have remembered, that I've seen their plight, I've seen their oppression, I've seen their hurts, I've seen their pains, and I've seen their wounds. And again, if this is just a story that happened 3,000 years ago, that's great. But how many of you here also need to hear that reality? There is a God, and this God has heard. And this God has seen your wounds and your pains and your hurts. And if this God could encounter Pharaoh, the most powerful person that had ever lived at the time, the person who built the pyramids, and if this God can handle that, then what could this God handle in your own life as well? So here we are, Exodus 4, follow along with me. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Again, Moses is going back and Moses is not taking any of his possessions with him. He's not bringing his sheep. He's not bringing his cattle. He's just bringing the people that are most important. Because again, when Moses was out, uh, when he experienced the burning bush that one day, he was shepherding sheep, which back in the day was like he was playing with his Roth IRA and his 401k right? These are the things that showed your wealth. The more sheep that you had, you could see them and you could say, this is how wealthy that I am. So we see here that Moses was living a comfortable life when this God encountered him, right? And this God says, I too am experiencing what you've seen before Moses. And I want to prepare you to go back to Egypt because now you've been in the desert for 40 years. From the moment that Moses killed the Egyptian, he was 40 years old, to the moment that Moses sees uh, God in the burning bush, now he's 80 years old. And then we'll see as Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh until the Exodus event happens and he'll be 120 when he dies, right? Those numbers are really important. It's like God was saying this, Moses, I want to use your life to go free my people. But with any good leadership that's out there, you can't take people where you yourself have not gone before. So if you really want to go have purpose, if you really want to go have meaning, if you really want to be the person which everyone's going to follow you on Instagram, then maybe you need to have a little experience and wisdom and life behind you before you start leading people where you don't even know you're going yourself. Those are really hard words when we're a little bit younger. And this is a reason that I pray all the time that we need more wisdom and more people in the second half of life in New Abbey. And I say that here a lot because that's what I desire we need people who've been somewhere before and they can help us who are not quite there yet figure out maybe what the path ahead is like. And that's all that Moses is doing here. He's the right person for the job because he's lived in the desert for 40 years. So who better to take the people through it than someone who's already been there themselves? The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. By the way, I don't really like these passages when, things, when God says things like this, right? By the way, Moses, I want you to go do something really hard 
and it's going to be even harder than you imagined it was going to be before. Thank you? Question mark? So then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Uh, other places in the Bible, because I want us to be good readers of the Bible, will say this, particularly in the prophets. Uh, maybe some of you have heard this phrase before, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is the first place that this happens uh, in the Bible, which is right here in the book of Exodus. This is God's kind of decree or command. Moses, you are going kind of with my blessing and you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be my spokesman for what God is doing in the world. And those are really important moments to see uh, when you're reading the Bible of what is it that God is actually saying? When God is actually speaking, what does God care about? And what God cares about in this story is that God cares about the relationship that Israel has to God. Uh, I was reading this commentary this week, and this commentator said, uh, the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with election. We do. The Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with providence or sovereignty. We do. And that troubled me reading that saying this week, because I think it's very easy for powerful Western white cultures to say, God has chosen us and blessed us, uh, and we are the ones who have colonized and ruled the world. Pretty convenient, I think. Um, and so it's no, it's no wonder to me that it's commentators who make comments like that about election. When in the Bible, right, the people of Israel and the entire Bible was written by the little guy or the little gal, right? It was written by the oppressed groups. It was written by those who were not the superpowers. And what's interesting about those people is that even though God chose Israel, God will say to them, I am blessing you so that you will go bless others. That's why I've chosen you. You receive blessing because when you take a million away from infinity, there's still infinity. So that when you receive that grace, you too will go offer that grace out to other people. And sometimes what's interesting is the more powerful you are, oftentimes it feels like people are taking away, from, taking away from your slice of the pie. And the more weak you are, you recognize, oh, there's just a way bigger pie out there that I have access to now, right? And so sometimes the more powerful we are, we are limited to God's grace. And sometimes the weaker we are, we're more exposed and open that there's something more powerful out there for us. So, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Yeah, we got to deal with that. At a lodging place on the way, this is going to get weird, by the way. This is going to get really weird. Have fun. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Okay, that's really interesting. If you've had a bad day, try this on for size, right? But Zipporah took a flint knife, um, which is like a stone that's not as sharp as you would imagine because it's a stone, and here's what she's going to do. Cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. I can see that a lot of you, this is your life verse. This makes sense. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Yeah. What do we do with that? She said, so the Lord let him alone. At the same time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Oh, you see how that can transform your life, huh? It's beautiful. Beautiful scripture. All right. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord has said to Moses. By the way, what I really love about this is that if God is really speaking to you, I really hope that other people can affirm what you're saying, right? If you're ever a committee of one, if you ever go up to somebody, right? I went to APU, so things like this would be said, right? I think God has for me to date you. Really? 
Because God hasn't told me the same thing. That's really fascinating. So if you ever come to a place where you're really sure that God's told you something, but God has not told anyone else around you, maybe it wasn't God, right? And so what's really helpful about this story is that God not only told Moses something, God told Aaron the same thing, and then he affirms that with the community of people around them. This is why it's critical to have good people in our life who can say, oh, that does sound like God to me as well. And not that you're a lone ranger out there who gets to decide what God is doing in this world. And there are a lot of people who do that. And most of the time they stand on stages like me, right? But we'll deal with that one another day as well. So he also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So let's talk about gravitational waves. Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. You saw how I got there. Makes a lot of sense. In August 14th, LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, uh, sensed some gravitational waves that had occurred 1.8 billion years ago. So what we know about black holes is that they're stars, but unlike most stars that give off light, black holes give off gravity. So what LIGO found on August 14th is that somewhere 1.8 billion light years away, two massive black holes had kind of started wrapping around one another and they were pulsating gravity into the universe. To give you perspective of this, uh, these two black holes as they were coming together and giving off gravity, they're 53 times the mass of the sun. So they're big and they're moving at the speed of a blender. So imagine something that huge rotating at the speed of a blender, pulsating gravity out into the universe. That's a lot of energy output that's taking place. And here's why that's interesting is that in the world of science, we keep doing more science and we keep asking more questions because we know that we don't know. And we want to ask better questions about what it means to be human and how we find life. But sometimes what's happened in the world of theology is we declare answers and doctrine and dogma because we want to know that we know everything. And yet sometimes then we have a really hard time putting gravitational waves and the Bible and the gospel somehow together. But what we know in the universe is that light is something that is shaping all of us, that stars are giving that off all the time. And we've done a lot with light and laser and optics, right, in the world of applied physics. But what's really interesting is we know so little about gravity still, but we know that somehow gravity is in the DNA and it's in the fabric of the universe, that somehow gravity is shaping us, right? Somehow gravity is affecting us every day, even when we don't know. And that is kind of like foreskins. You also see where I went there, great. So we have LIGO, we're gonna talk about mitzvah, we're gonna talk about foreskins, but you didn't think you were gonna hear that in church on Sunday. And then we're gonna talk about posture. So there are some things that are embedded into the fabric and the DNA of the universe. And there are some things that are embedded into the fabric and the DNA of the Bible. One of those things is the word mitzvah. Mitzvah is the word for commandment. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking for the Jews that we often don't think about as Christians. But mitzvah is one of those ideas and one of those concepts in which we should have learned well from our older brother Judaism. What happened in, in Christianity for, for a lot of years, particularly as we became more powerful, is that we started to engage in sin management. We became really focused on morality and piety in a way in which we were trying to prohibit our actions and don't do certain actions. 
But mitzvah is this more positive ideal for the world. It's a way of consciousness that says, not only am I doing the commandments, but am I thinking about the most good in the world? So there's some 613 mitzvahs in the Old Testament, all of which Jesus would have been extremely familiar with. But Jesus understood that every time that we have a commandment or a reality, what happens in the religious world is that we begin to allow the tail to wag the dog. So we say, these are the commandments that you're supposed to do, but then we don't allow for the grace of the spirit of that thing to kind of work itself out. So for example, uh, somewhere in history, we decided that if you're gonna be a Christian, we want you to be baptized as just a internal reality, right? Of, of the external grace that you're experiencing. We want you to be baptized to show other people and to show your community that you've, that you've got skin in the game, right? For this Jesus thing. Then what happened was, is that uh, it started to add more rules to baptism. And somewhere in the early church, we used to make people go through this two-year process before they would get baptized. And then eventually it became so difficult to get baptized that people just stopped getting baptized, right? Or you have the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we, we love tradition and we love the priesthood, but then eventually what happens is we give so much power to one group that we didn't start using the Bible well. Then what happens in Protestantism is that we get so focused on the Bible, right? And now you got to read the Bible a certain way that we forget about tradition. So we all find these commandments. We all find these ways that we connect with God. And then because we experience in that way, we want to make sure that everyone else now experiences God in the exact same way. But Jesus was very aware of this. And so Jesus is trying to open us up to a broader reality about a consciousness that's good and that's right. And you're just asking better questions in the world about how you're being human. So it says this about Jesus, right? Uh, that seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, which is this idea, and we talked about it in here before, that any time that Jesus left a place, he left it better. He left it more right. That is a mitzvah consciousness. Jesus experienced a lot of religious conservatives who knew mitzvah well by the letter of the law. So one day Jesus was standing around and all of the religious conservatives who understood mitzvah really well brought a woman who had just been caught in the act of adultery. And they said, the mitzvah, the commandments tell us we should kill this woman because she was caught in the act of adultery. But Jesus understood a broader consciousness about mitzvah, which is, is that gonna leave the world more right? Is that gonna leave more good in the world? Or are we missing the point of what the commandment was about? Was the commandment trying to encourage us to live in monogamous, faithful relationships? Was that more of the point than killing the young woman? And so Jesus was constantly being approached about the mitzvahs of his culture and saying, you've heard it said this way, but let me show you a deeper mitzvah in this world. Let me show you a better way of understanding what it means to be human and commandment and covenant. And that's a very Jewish way of thinking. Uh, somewhere around the year 500 AD in Christianity, what happened is that we started doing more doctrine and dogma right about the same time that we canonized or approved the book of the Bibles. Um, and then what happened in Judaism at the same time is that rabbinic Judaism was really growing. So at the very time that Christians were becoming more certain about creeds and doctrine and dogma, Jews were saying, oh man, we've been beat up by all of the superpowers for the last 2,500 years. Maybe we need more questions than we do answers. And so sometimes when we look to our older brother Judaism, we learn a different way of life that Jesus was very attuned to. Now, how does that apply to circumcision? The very first mitzvah 
that a boy would experience is the mitzvah of circumcision. It's the very first commandment that any young boy has to go through of the 613 mitzvahs that are out there for Jews. So at eight days old, a young boy would be brought to the rabbi and the, bribe, and the rabbi would do mitzvah, right? Honor a certain commandment of circumcising this young child. Now, we live in a world where that seems a little barbaric, maybe a little bloody or a little confusing of, huh, why was that the way that things needed to be? And that's what I love about the Bible is that it's messy. It's not clean. We're the ones who've domesticated it. We're the ones who've tried to clean it up. But what's going on in the scriptures is this way of saying, yeah, that's incredibly messy to literally go cut the foreskin off of an eight-year-old child, right? Because now what happens for this family and for this entire community is that they're participating in this messiness and they're reasserting to themselves that they are committed to the mitzvahs of God that they are committed to this broader relationship and connection with what God is doing in the world. So in this Moses story, what happens here is that Moses was an Egyptian. He was not a Hebrew boy, didn't grow up in that world, so he didn't get circumcised. And that God had made promises and covenant, right? He had made mitzvahs with his people in the past. And one of the requirements of his people is that they would all be circumcised. And that their circumcision was a way of saying that they were all about being what God was about. Because what better way to say what you're about than every time you use the restroom, right? Every time you perform other acts where you're like, yeah, I'm really about this God. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not even trying to be like gross or dirty here. I'm like, that's, that's incredible, right? That's an incredible way of saying, I am all about this God because this God is all about me. And so Genesis 17 says this, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generation to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off, pun intended, right, from his people. Seriously, pun intended, like in the Hebrew, and my covenant. That, again, this might sound very barbaric to you, but this is God's way of saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to honor the covenant at all costs. I'm asking you to participate in mitzvah in a way in which you say, now, God, I'm all about your covenant. God, I'm all about the things that you're going to be about. And so this passage seems really weird, but really it's a way of bringing us back into the story of saying, this God heard the pleas and the cry of his people because this is what God does on God's side of the covenant. And that God is always asking for us, do you have skin in the game? Again, pun intended. Do you really want to participate in this thing? Do you really want to be engaged in the work that I'm going to be engaged in in the world? And if you do, it's going to cost you something. It's going to require a little sacrifice. It, it's, it's, it's going to be something that you're going to have to give yourself to in a way that you didn't previously thought. Because we all want free stuff, right? We all just want God to do God's part. But the question is then, are we going to do our part in the healing of the world? And this was a way of saying, yeah, God, I'm engaged in this 
just as much as you are, even though we're not. It's just a way of saying, yeah, from a very young age, this is what me and my household and my community are going to be about. And so the circumcision that took place here is a way for Moses and for Moses' family to say, yeah, God, you've done your part. Now we're going to do our part. Mitzvah. Now I want to talk about posture. In this passage, we see that they go and they worship God. And worshiping God is just about your posture. It's about your posture of recognizing that you are not the greatest being on planet Earth. Jesus offers us this great mitzvah, this great commandment that says this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's worshiping God. Give yourself the best posture possible to recognize who God is. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. And for the Jews, that part of the mitzvah would be things like circumcision, that you're now going to participate in the covenant in some different way. And so there was this realization of interdependence in this relationship. The interdependence is this. God is going to do God's part, and we have to have a posture that recognizes who God is. And then we're going to do our part in the story as well. Let's talk a little bit about Los Angeles in 2017. And we've talked about this in here before. We live in a world that either advocates for codependence or it advocates for independence. I would argue this, that in the generations before millennials, codependence was a greater cultural value than it is for us now. We value independence in a much greater way. For some of the older generations before us, particularly like the great generation who fought in World War II, even a lot of the baby boomers, there was this value of commitment. Like, again, I'm going to work at the Ford plant for 30 years. The negative side of what happened there sometimes is that there was a codependency that was created. And on the independent side, same things, mainly for more millennials, what, what we live in a world is we're not really great at commitment. It's not our strong suit in a lot of ways, right? Um, I'm always curious in this great mitzvah of God, like love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, is that we're loving God, we're loving others, and we're also loving ourselves. And something that I would say that I'm guilty of, and maybe that millennials are guilty of a lot, is that we're really good at loving ourselves. But are we great at participating in the other aspects of mitzvah, the other aspects of life? The reason that we love ourselves really well is because the generations before us weren't that great at loving themselves. They were really committed to the Ford plant. They were really committed to the idea of marriage, even though sometimes they didn't actually love their partner, right? They liked the rules of mitzvah. They didn't maybe have the heart of mitzvah. And this pendulum is constantly swinging in history back and forth. And so we had a group of people before us who liked the rules of something and they were extremely committed but maybe they were miserable with some of the rules that they had chosen, right? And now we live in the, in the generation where we're really good at loving ourselves and we say things like my truth and our truth and that's somehow the most important thing in the world. As if your experience is bigger than thousands of years of tradition and history that's in something beyond you, right? If your truth and my truth is not rooted in the mitzvahs of billions of people for thousands of years who have lived faithfully for the fact that we're even here in the first place, then maybe your truth and my truth is not big enough. Or I'm very, I can speak this way because I'm a freaking millennial myself, right? Sometimes what happens as well is that we're really good at boundaries in our generation, right? The, the pastor who taught me lived in a world where you have no boundaries. He was a baby boomer. 
And he lived in a glass house and he had to say certain things and, and he always had to give himself away even at the pain of his own family. And now I live in a world where like, I'm really great at boundaries. But sometimes I'm so great at boundaries and am I missing an opportunity to participate in the mitzvah of the world? And so we have to constantly live back and forth with the broad reality of what mitzvah is. Are we learning from one another, from our strengths and from our weaknesses so that together we can grow as a more healthy body of Christ? I wanna close with this story of someone who performed a little mitzvah in front of me a few weeks ago uh, that kind of shaped the way that, uh, not circumcision, I saw your face, Jim. don't worry, yeah. <laughs> Woo, yeah, that was a really good one. Uh, I'm gonna brag on my wife a little bit. The, the other day I get home and my wife says to me, I'm at my mom of preschoolers group and this woman was sharing there about the fact that she just doesn't get enough time with her husband. And they got one kid right now and I, and, I, and I felt something about that. It wasn't a moment of like, I got boundaries. I'm gonna protect myself. I already watched three kids 24 seven a day, right? It was this moment of grace and compassion and like the real mitzvah of the world, right? There's, there's, there's something happening here and I'm experiencing it and I wanna participate in a way that's actually gonna cost me something. So she says to this woman, can I watch your child one night so that you can go on a date night with your husband? And so I, I'm at these meetings one night and I come home and I knew that was the night that she's gonna watch the kids. And I'm like, you've been watching our three children all day long and you said, let's add another one into the bunch, right? On a day that I'm gone, for what reason? And for me, there was a mitzvah that was participated there because it provides the best good in the world. Because when that woman gets to go out with her husband that day, then it's gonna leave the world more right than it was before. And so the question in our lives are, are we participating in mitzvah on both sides? Do we have a better posture in the world that recognizes that we are not the center of the universe and that we need God? The whole story in the Bible, the main character of the Bible is God. The main character in the book of Exodus is God. There's this realization of we can't figure it out on our own and we need something greater than ourselves. And do we live in a posture that recognizes that? And at the same time, are we participating in the game as well? Because it's when those two things come together, we call that incarnation, when the divine and humanity meet, that's when the world is really humming. In 12-step groups, the very first step is this, that you admit that you are powerless and that your life has become unmanageable. There's a mitzvah there. It's the realization of, I cannot do this on my own anymore. And if I keep trying, my life is gonna lead to more insanity and more brokenness. But there's also saying in 12 steps groups of, you might be powerless and you need to participate in a better posture that says, God, I actually need you, but you're not helpless. And you can make choices that will benefit your life. You can seek out community. You can ask for therapists. You can find prayer. You can go get a spiritual director. You can get a coach. There's a lot of different efforts that we can take to grow in ourselves and to find more healing and more health and more transformation. So I wanna finish with these questions together. What mitzvah do you want to grow in? Skin in the game, no, that does not mean circumcision. What are some ways that you wanna participate more what are some ways that you feel God leading you? What are the, maybe the subtle ways that you've just heard God saying, yeah, I've heard that person say that they just need the babysitter. Maybe today's the day that we offer them babysitting, right? Well, I don't know what it is in your world. That was my wife's and it was beautiful. Or do you wanna grow in a posture that says, oh yeah, I actually need 
God? And what are some ways maybe that you can grow in that reality? Find the same three or four people around you and then we'll come back together. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.